electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, technology could be the key to flattening the coronavirus curve, but are Americans willing to sacrifice personal privacy for public health? Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian on the path ahead. The challenge right now is these large tech companies are at an all-time low when it comes to user trust overall. DoorDash is teaming up with one state to keep delivery workers safe. We've got the company's CEO. We really wanted to step up and make sure that there was a holistic program so that started with distributing millions of units of sanitizers, gloves, masks to make sure that they would be protected. And Pennsylvania's attorney general. Gig workers are stepping up on the front lines and really acting as essential workers. Plus, United Airlines is warning employees about job cuts after it accepted government aid to prevent layoffs. The U.S.-China relationship is roiling again, or still, and we work. Yep, yet another chapter in the co-working saga. There's been so much written. I feel like I know Adam Newman well. Not sure I want to get to know him any better. It's Tuesday, May 5th, 2020. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Let's take a look at the U.S. equity. First up today on the podcast, the troubled travel industry and what it could indicate about the way large companies find their way out of the economic crisis presented by the coronavirus. Internal memos from United Airlines forced to park jets due to the extreme lack of travel demand show that the company plans to cut about 30 percent of its management jobs later this year. And United warned pilots to prepare for what it calls a displacement that will impact about 30 percent of that workforce. United has accepted U.S. government aid and, as a result, agreed not to make any job or pay cuts before September 30th. Remember that date. White-collar job cuts are coming to United Airlines. Phil LeVoe joins us now with more. Good morning, Phil. Hey, Joe. This is the first of what we will see likely for the entire airline industry play out over the next several months. Yesterday, United told all of its management and administrative employees, about 11,000 in the entire company, that at least, at least 30 percent of those jobs will be eliminated starting October 1st. Now, the rest of the company, another 90,000, were also receiving a memo. And essentially in that memo, they said there will be changes. There are also reports that separately the pilots were told it could be as many as 30 percent of their jobs will be cut in the fall. Remember, it's just a couple of weeks ago that United Airlines received approximately $5 billion through the CARES Act. That is uh, included in there was $3.5 billion in a grant, money that was given directly to them from the Treasury Department, in addition to a loan that they took out from the Treasury Department. The condition on that loan and on the money that was given to them as part of a grant was you can't fire anybody. You can't have mass layoffs before September 30th. But to be clear, United and really every single airline has been forecasting that there will be job cuts down the road. So they needed this money to keep everybody employed at least through September 30th. But after September 30th, United is now saying at least 30 percent of the white collar jobs are going. You'll see thousands more in terms of frontline employees as well. And 
They're also trying to, as much as possible, cut the costs here. They told the machinists on Friday, your hours are going to go down 25%, which is contractually allowed, going from 40 hours a week down to 30 hours a week. Uh, Guys, this is what the airline industry is doing right now. It has the money in place to at least keep operations and everybody employed through September 30th. But unless things change, and it's not expected to anytime soon, there will be other airlines announcing similar types of job cuts in the weeks and months ahead. Hey, Phil, just in terms of being able to cut hours, does that count, too? I mean, can you take the money and then say, okay, we're not laying anybody off, but I'm going to take away 25 percent of everybody's hours? That's contractually. That was contractually allowed. And there were a number of people, Senator Hawley. Contractually allowed by the the contract with with, the airlines? By the contract. But what about the the contract between. Well, you're at you. Now you're getting into the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law, United said at the time when they took out the CARES Act, look, we are not going to be cutting hours or cutting pay and uh, jobs. Well, they certainly have not cut the jobs. In terms of the pay, you're getting into this gray area in terms of what's allowed under the contract, the collective bargaining agreement between the machinist union and United Airlines. And clearly, United believes that, look, we're allowed to in this contract to go from 40 hours a week guaranteed could go as low as 22 hours a week. We've told the union you're going to go wow. down to 30 hours a week. So um, there, there are certainly many machinists who are not happy about this. I reached out to United over the weekend, and they said, look, this is contractually allowed. And what you have is an airline right. here, and they're not the only one, guys. I know of everyone saying, well, why is United doing this? You will see this almost with every airline, that they are doing whatever they Phil. can to cut their costs as quickly as possible. Phil, but this goes to me, this goes back to the debate we had when we were we were providing these loans, which was to say at the time, even internally inside these airlines, there was an expectation that they were going to have to lay people off even as they were taking the loans. And so, as we were saying, and, and we said it on the air many times, this program effectively saves the shareholders, but doesn't necessarily save the employees. And the whole goal, of course, was to save employees. More than anything else, we were trying to keep the employees in business. The airlines could have gone through bankruptcy, gone out the other side, and still kept the planes in the air, obviously with less employees. And so the question I have is, how do you think airline executives are going to respond to the public when, you know, 10, 20 percent, whatever percent we think are going to uh, of employees are no longer on the payrolls come this fall? I think the executives will do the same thing that they've been doing from day one. Andrew, we were at the White House when all of the airline CEOs were called in. Every single one, every single one said the same thing, which is we need to make dramatic changes. And in fact, while we were there, United was saying, look, we're going to be having a number of uh, employees, thousands of employees taking unpaid leaves of absences because we need to cut the cost dramatically immediately. And they even said at the time, Andrew, the, the money is appreciated. It is helpful to keep the operations, to keep us yep. from going into bankruptcy immediately. But we, unless things change, we will need to make changes in how many people work for each airline. So, yeah, is there going to be backlash? Absolutely. Will people sit there and howl? Yeah. The airlines are not beloved anyhow by many people. I mean, people criticize them on a number of fronts. This will be one more where they say they took the money and now they cut the jobs. But to be clear, they warned all along these job cuts are going to be necessary. It was known. It was known six weeks ago. It was known at the very time. Yes. That was the only point I was was trying to to get at. It was known as they walked into the White House. It was known as they walked into the White House. Exactly. Okay. Thanks, Phil. We have some other news in uh, 
in the sort of high profile uh, corporate personality category. WeWork's co-founder Adam Newman filed a lawsuit last night against SoftBank and its vision fund over that failed $3 billion tender offer. Last month, SoftBank said it would not move forward with the tender offer because several preconditions had not been met. That frustrated WeWork's minority shareholders, including, as you might imagine, Newman, who were expecting a payout. Adam Newman expecting that payout of a billion dollars. If you really read through the lawsuit, and it's very similar to the same, uh, there was a, another suit that had been brought uh, against the company by the special committee of WeWork, which was representing the minority shareholders. Um, Deidre Bose joins us with more on that story. Deidre. Andrew, dramatic and, of course, just the latest in this ongoing WeWork SoftBank saga. Now, Adam Newman's complaint alleges that SoftBank, quote, doubled down on their abuse of power and argues that its deteriorating financial position influenced its decision to renege on its obligations. One, remember, that would have seen Adam Newman receive $970 million as part of that wider bailout and other early employees cash out. The lawsuit even calls out Masasan himself, accusing the Japanese billionaire of using his influence to pressure investors. And guys, this is a very far cry from how Adam Newman described his relationship with Masasan to me just a year and a half ago. Have a listen. And something beautiful about Masasan and my relationship is how we communicate. So if I have something I need to change or talk about, or he has something he needs to talk about, we call each other. We actually prefer face-to-face meetings. It's a real partnership. And I think the longer we know each other, the more we can build it. And Masasan is one of the most visionary investors in the world. I see Masasan as one of the best or the best high-growth investor in the world. And I'm pleased that he chose to invest in us. Now, even then, there were still signs of a fraying relationship. Less than a month before this interview, SoftBank had reneged on another $16 billion offer for the co-working space. So, Andrew, this goes back some time, but certainly a dramatic twist. Deidre, just in terms of the timeline of what takes place next and what we find out next in in this lawsuit, and it, it seems like discovery, going into the files to try to actually see what really happened and whether Masasan tried to actually upend some of these transactions that didn't take place, which which allowed them to, to at least say or claim that the closing conditions didn't exist. How do you think we're going to see all of that? And, and it sounds like there's going to be a lot of fighting over, over what gets public. Certainly. And remember that this isn't the only lawsuit. The special committee, which involved early shareholders, has also filed a lawsuit. So Uh, We'll see what comes out of this. But remember, too, WeWork is in a world of trouble this year. Um, It said that it had $4.4 billion as of the end of this year in cash and cash equivalent. So it's going to make it through this year. It's going to make it through a recession, potentially, most likely. And being in a fight with its biggest shareholder does not bode well. Um, And remember, too, that WeWork is part of the Vision Fund. There are many, many other companies that Masasan and SoftBank are invested in um, that are also having funding issues. So one of the main tenets of this argument, this complaint, is that WeWork's financial position, excuse me, SoftBank's financial position, led it to renege on this deal. So how that comes out will certainly be interesting. Hey, guys, I'll ask you both this. I mean, the idea that Adam Newman is bringing this doesn't... uh, Does he just have no shame? He doesn't even recognize how ridiculous it looks to be arguing about how he didn't walk away with an additional billion dollars? You want to take it, Deidre? Uh, (laughs) Sure, I'll certainly take that. Uh, Well, $970 million, absolutely. I think that there is so much involved in this. The source familiar with the matter tells me that that $16 billion that WeWork was supposed to get back in 2018 
that money, much of it had already been spent because there was a commitment. And only the eve of signing, which was December 24th, did SoftBank back out of it. So that is what Source Familiar tells me what led to that ill-fated IPO. They had already spent much of that money. They had to go public in 2019, which led to a lot of the embarrassing disclosures in the S1. Absolutely. Um, But some might argue that they might not have taken that on growth at all costs if Masasan and SoftBank hadn't said, here's $20 billion. You made me be a bad manager. Becky, the the complicated part, I think, about this whole whole situation is that effectively SoftBank came in and said, we're going to rescue the company. Remember, there was a potentially a competing bid. And part of that part of the SoftBank bid was we're going to buy out all the minority, minority shareholders, of course, which includes uh, Adam Newman getting or what, supposedly getting that, that billion dollars. They effectively now have gotten a majority control of the company without actually paying to do so, at least as part of the transaction that they agreed to. So that, but you that's know what? where that this might comes be what from, it's worth. Look around. I know. But look around. Well, no, I mean, no. you've got today, L. Brand's today, deal blowing clearly, up. <laughs> right. But, but, but I even think, at that and point, I think, I think, I think people what, would argue the, how much was it worth? What I think is this whole thing is going to rest on, though, is two things. One is how how uh, how buttoned up was that contract? And I think it might have been a lot more buttoned up or or maybe as buttoned up, if not more so than the Victoria's Secret deal. We'll see. And then the secondary component is, did Masasun try to do something on the other end to upend the transaction so that he could walk away? So it's it. A lot. There's nobody out there who's uh, who's feeling there are too, too many bad sympathetic for Adam Newman, characters I'm sure, here. this morning. Yeah. <laughs> well, and yeah, this but, number gets gets all the headlines. Nine hundred seventy million dollars for Adam Newman. But remember, this is a three billion dollar tender offer. Yes, the early investors are part of that, but others would argue that there's early WeWork employees also who are getting hit by this, and that's essentially what Adam Newman is arguing too. That it's not just him; it's others. And you know, as we said, we pointed to. Deals in the past that have been reneged on the eve of signing. Okay. Uh, We'll be watching this soap opera, Deidre Bosa. The global markets continue to focus on rising U.S.-China tensions. Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing. She joins us right now. And Eunice, it is really good to see you. It's been way too long. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, um, Becky. Uh, but, you know, the it looks as though China's top intelligence agency is concerned that those tensions between the U.S. and China are just going to continue to get worse. In fact, apparently last month, uh, researchers at the Ministry of State Security presented to President Xi Jinping himself their concerns that the global pushback over the coronavirus and the anti-China sentiment is just as bad, if not worse, than what it was uh, during the 1989 crackdown on Tiananmen Square protesters. So the uh, Reuters was told by uh, sources that uh, the internal report warned that China could see a pushback on cooperation for investment projects such as Belt and Road, that uh, this could potentially encourage the U.S. to step up financial and military support with regional allies, making the security situation in Asia from China's perspective much less stable. And finally, that uh, the paper concluded that the U.S. would continue to fan this anti-Beijing sentiment in order to undermine uh, China's rise and in a worst case scenario could eventually lead to an armed confrontation between Washington and Beijing. Now, it's unclear how seriously 
Beijing's leaders are taking this report. Uh, the foreign ministry wouldn't comment on it. But what I think is interesting is the fact that this report was leaked at all. And I think it indicates um, just that there are divisions within the Chinese government, as you'd expect, but often it is not highlighted publicly that there are divisions about what, what's become a much more aggressive and combative diplomatic style uh, coming out of Beijing. It is good to see you again. Uh, I don't know why we don't uh, check in more. I saw an interesting political piece. Did you, did you guys see this one? It, it says that uh, China's really proud of the way they handle coronavirus, and they're, they're, they're kind of laughing at the United States' response. That was, that's on Politico this morning. You see that, Eunice? I'll send it to you. But, uh, I, I... All the time. Oh, I thought you meant in the state press and on <laughs> and in the I social it media. Was, but it was political, but uh, so. we see that all the time. Yeah, yeah no, no, I'll state. It it, it, it's it's quite it's quite common on television or um, in the papers about how poorly the U.S. has handled this. Yeah. How the U.S. had a heads up for two months uh, that the Chinese were able to clamp down very quickly, and in fact um, are are quite gracious by uh, giving um, all of the protective gear wow. uh, to various countries and. Have have been able to manage this quite right. well from China's Kudos. perspective. Kudos, China. Thank you. Next, gig workers on the front line of the coronavirus pandemic, keeping them safe and keeping them employed. Squawk Pod will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Whether you're going to the store for groceries or ordering delivery, if it feels like you're spending more on food this spring of 2020, that's because you are. Prices of everything from meat to dairy and bread are rising. According to Nielsen, year-to-date milk prices are up 10%. Produce is up 10%. Eggs up 30%. In fact, four out of five food categories are higher. Normally, food inflation is 1% to 2%, but over the last six weeks, that has doubled. The other side of the coin is the restaurant industry, across the board embracing takeout and figuring out the best way to get meals to customers safely. In response to the coronavirus outbreak, DoorDash is beefing up (laughs) support for some of its employees as part of a partnership with the Pennsylvania Attorney General's Office for workers in the Keystone State. DoorDash will expand financial childcare and health-related support for its gig workers. PA's Attorney General Josh Shapiro and DoorDash CEO Tony Hsu joined Squawk Box today. Here's Andrew. Help us understand uh, what this partnership is going to do for the people in your community. Well, it's good to be with you. Look, we know here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we've got 1.7 million Pennsylvanians out of work. We also know that gig workers are stepping up on the front lines and really acting as essential workers for so many of the products we need. And yet many of them can't get PPE. Many of them can't get the financial security and the benefits they need if they get sick or a loved one gets sick. Enter DoorDash. You know, I've been trying to work with gig economy companies to try and make sure that they would protect their workers. And I reached out to Tony a couple weeks ago. I said, let's do something really significant for these gig workers in Pennsylvania. Let's 
make sure that we set a new standard of protection for these workers. And it's great to work with DoorDash, and not only are we able to do it in Pennsylvania, but Tony's taking that all the way across uh, the country, not just making sure that they've got PPE and benefits and funding if they get sick, but also stepping up in two communities that have just really been racked by both the, the economic crisis and the public health crisis, and that's Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. We've got homebound, low-income seniors who can't get access to food that's actually being paid for for them. And so now we're going to have dashers right. taking those meals to those seniors. So all in all, this is a big step for Pennsylvania. It's a huge step for gig workers. And I'm proud to partner with DoorDash. Hey, Tony, explain it a little bit, not just in the Pennsylvania context, but to the degree that you're going to try to take this nationally. How much money is it going to cost you? How much money is it going to cost the state as well or states that are going to partner with you? Well, for DoorDash, it's a big investment. It, it's it's a um, you know multi million dollar investment um, where that's really started about a month ago uh, at the beginning of this crisis. As I think many of you know, this health crisis is also an economic crisis. There's been so many furloughed workers or workers who've had to receive pay cuts that we really wanted to step up and make sure that there was a holistic program. So that started with distributing millions of units of sanitizers, gloves, masks to make sure that they would be protected, defaulting to no contact deliveries. And then with you know the expansion of the announcement we made a few weeks ago and in partnership with Attorney General Shapiro today, we are expanding our financial assistance program. So as mentioned, making sure that uh, the top drivers who are most active on our platform that have primary child care responsibilities would get financial support, making sure that all dashers, including new dashers who are joining in record numbers, would be able to get access to sick leave, making sure that all dashers would be uh, given access to telemedicine so they don't have to choose and find ways to get diagnosed or you know, related to any sort of health concerns. And then, as Attorney General Shapiro highlighted, we are also doing uh, work in the community. So that's taking the Project Dash initiative that we've rolled out nationwide and now taking it to Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, in which we're donating and delivering free meals to the most vulnerable populations, mobility-impaired households, the elderly, uh, food shelters, and then finally also giving free deliveries to healthcare workers in the Pennsylvania uh, healthcare network, uh, as well as nationwide. Tony, though, how does this change the business model? Because obviously one of the big debates about the gig economy has been all of the benefits or, frankly, the lack of benefits that gig workers traditionally were provided. And that was so crucial, at least I think the public's understanding was so crucial to the business model of a company like a DoorDash. Well, I appreciate the question, Andrew, because I, I think one of the things that most people don't recognize is that most of the workers on the DoorDash platform or on platforms like DoorDash work very few hours a week. Um, you know, typically before this pandemic, 90% of drivers were working about three hours on average per week. And that's because they had other jobs. Uh, and this was really an opportunity to supplement that income. Now, certainly with COVID-19 and the turmoil that I think we've seen in the economy, uh, there have been lots of folks joining platforms like ours to make sure that they can um, add to their you know, previous income. You know, what they really value is making sure that they have the flexibility to work whenever they want, wherever they want, especially during now. And we want to make sure that these folks also get the protections that they deserve. 
Um, Attorney General Shapiro, how do you think about the gig worker? Again, this larger this larger contextual question of whether gig workers should get benefits, should be considered employees versus contractors and the benefits that they may get as contractors insofar as they can they can work when they want to work. They don't have to work when they don't want to work. It's it's a it's a conundrum. Well, it's a it's not so much a conundrum, but it is a serious public policy issue that needs to be addressed. I'm choosing to look at this sort of in two buckets. Number one, we've got an immediate crisis and Tony and DoorDash have stepped up to address that for their workers here. And I'm going to be working with other CEOs uh, from the, you know, these gig companies to try and get them to emulate what DoorDash did. But you raise a really important point about the broader economic issues. I've been a champion for workers and I have seen so many gig workers fall through the cracks when they don't have the kind of security that other workers have. Clearly, this needs to be addressed on a broad public policy issue as we rebuild our economy. And with so many people out of work in Pennsylvania, I said that before, 1.7 million Pennsylvanians, that's one in five workers here in the Commonwealth. We know that there's going to be a realignment of the workforce. And we know that more people are going to seek the flexibility that Tony's talking about and ways in which they can um, you know, provide for their family and have flexibility to do the other things they need. But in the process of getting that flexibility, in the process of being able to work for one of these gig companies, we've got to make sure that they step up with worker protections. We think that this is a really important start. We think this sets a good tone and a good example, but we've got a serious challenge in this country with Within a decade, we know that more than 50 percent of our workforce is going to be in a position where they are uh, they are working for one of these gig companies, where they're independent contractors. We've got to ensure that they have protections so that they can't be taken advantage of by employers or by the circumstances that might uh, that might you know create challenges for them. Okay, Attorney General Shapiro, uh, Tony, thank you guys. Appreciate it very very much. Thank, thank you, you very here. much. Next on Squawk Pod, funding and trusting entrepreneurs trying to build contact tracing for cases of COVID-19. It's quite unfortunate because technology could really be helping us here in, in very meaningful ways. Um, but the thing that, that has been eroded is that is that trust. Venture capitalist and Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian on personal privacy versus public health. Plus, Squawk guests, they're just like us. Alexis, um, I've been watching your Twitter feed, too. I saw your picture of your hair the other day. Summoning the courage for an at-home haircut. That's all after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older. Like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. 
As countries around the world look to get back to normal safely, we are learning more about what one virus tracking technology might look like. Yesterday, Apple and Google revealed what the code could eventually look like for apps that trace users and tell them if they've been near anyone who's been diagnosed with COVID-19. That technology relies on Bluetooth signals and could go live by the middle of this month. Joining us right now to talk about the virus tracing, as well as the embedded privacy debate that goes along with that, is Alexis Ohanian. He's Initialized Capital's co-founder and managing partner. He's also the co-founder of Reddit. And Alexis, it's good to see you. Yeah, likewise, uh, which could be under different circumstances. Yeah, me too. I've been following you, kind of uh, watching how you're tracking everything that's going. And I know that you have a lot of different projects that you're working with when it comes to coronavirus and how to try and battle that on some fronts. But why don't we just start talking about the whole idea of tracking? I mean, you know uh, the digital community pretty well. You helped build it with Reddit. And do you think that this is an idea that they will either embrace or fear, this idea of giving up some privacy but being able to find out if you've been around anybody who, who has coronavirus? Yeah, I think you know, this has always been an interesting relationship uh, because you know social media empowers people to share every possible thing about themselves from where they are to how they're feeling. Um, when it comes to health, though, there is a higher standard that, that I think all consumers expect, and, and rightly, rightly so, they should. Um, the challenge right now is these large tech companies are at an all-time low when it comes to uh, sort of uh, user trust overall uh, because it's been eroded over you know, a decade plus. So I think on the one hand, yes, technologically, there's a lot of value that can be created here. There's a lot of good that can be done. Um, and there are actually lots of ways to still safeguard privacy, even with tools like this. The bigger issue is the lack of trust and the fact that you're going to need to get users over the, the, the mental hurdle of being willing to have this information um, stored on, you know, Google or someone else's servers. And, uh, and I think that wouldn't have been the case, say, five or 10 years ago. Um, but it, it, the perception has very much shifted since. Would you give up your information? Uh, I, you know, I'm in enough of the uh, the the sort of public light that uh, I I don't really I, I still want my privacy, obviously, but uh, but I've come into a different expectation of it just because I know so much of my life is already going to be public. Um, but like, would I recommend that my my dad do it? Um, I don't know. I think I think we would need to see a really uh, transparent and 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 hopefully accountable uh, providing. Um, company uh, to give us the confidence to say like, all right, yeah, we can, we'd be willing to do this. Uh, and, and like I said, it's, it's quite unfortunate because technology could really be helping us here in, in very meaningful ways. Um, but the thing that, that has been eroded is that, is that trust. Hey, Alexis, like I said, you've got a lot of different things that, that you're working on. One of your portfolio companies is a, is a company called Better Fin, And I know that they've been helping with some of the PPP loans, trying to get that out. How's that going so far? And, and what do you think of the overall PPP program? Well, look, we need to get this money onto Main Street. And I think small businesses, medium-sized medium businesses, these, these SMBs need to be the first ones to recover. Um, we were thrilled. We were have been investors in Betterfin for the last year or so, and really they've been able to shine now because of this software, which they had already built to help small business owners, you know, fast track and basically get a chance to apply for loans or disaster relief. They've helped thousands of people apply for PPP, um, but you know those programs are going through funding really quickly, and a lot of the folks who are getting the funding uh, don't necessarily need it. Uh, as badly as these small businesses do. And so I think the more and more opportunities we can get to back companies like Betterfin, uh, another one called Withco uh, launched a program actually just this past week. 
in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, for, for basically, um, just 0% loans um, because they want to onboard these small businesses into their software. They know what they need right now from all the time that they've spent in Charlotte is actually just capital in order to keep their, their, their business going even during these shelter in place. And, uh, and the promise is all the software that they've built in addition um, is able to help rebuild Main Street uh, as we come out of this. Uh, and so we're actively looking for more companies to invest in that can then invest in these small businesses during the recovery. Because I think not just as a business person, but as an American, we, we desperately need those businesses to exist and to thrive as we come back because they are such big employers because they actually do get money back into communities where they serve. And, um, you know, we're going to, the recovery is going to absolutely need them. Hey, Alexis, I think the big banks, though, are getting a little bit of a bad rap in all of this. I mean, they are responsible for a lot of small businesses, too. I think J.P. Morgan alone represents about 7% of all small businesses in America. You've got a similar percentage that's represented by Wells Fargo and a similar percentage represented by Bank of America. And I think some of the problems with the PPP have really been on the SBA side. Not that it's a surprise. They were trying to put through 14 years worth of loans in 12 days. But I think some of the pushback, you know, small, the fintech is doing some for small businesses. Obviously, community banks are, too. But I don't think the big banks cannot be involved with that if you're really trying to get the money out to to Main Street. Yeah. Yeah. And look, at the end of the day, I mean, this was uh, an exceptional situation that required people to move really quickly to get a lot of money distributed. Um, And so there's with any kind of Herculean effort that's going to happen, I think, uh, across the board, folks were unprepared for this, um, and I and I get it. I do think moving forward, hopefully, a lot of the infrastructure. And again, I, this, this all just comes back to software. Um, a lot of the infrastructure mm-hmm. that I hope we can build coming out of this will be the plumbing to make this much more practical. Right? But what we don't want to think as Americans is that you know uh, an executive at a bank can have a, an easy phone call with a friend of theirs or a high value client who is a small business owner. Um, that's going to mean money will go to the, get, go to them faster than say the other 50 who don't necessarily know the, uh, the, uh, administration's, uh, uh, phone number. And so that is, is sort of the reality of when you're putting all this responsibility so quickly on a massive banking infrastructure that doesn't really have the ability to scale. Um, but this is where I think coming out of this, we will see a much clearer, much more evident need for software being a part of these businesses in order to do this, this work just better, cheaper, faster, uh, and actually make sure that it gets to where it needs to go. We spoke with Dr. Scott Gottlieb a little earlier. He's the former head of the FDA, and he's been a great voice on this, kind of giving us up to date um, how things are changing, where he sees the greatest need. And today he was saying, look, we're going to have to really focus on areas where it's um, less privileged people who are there, who are crowded into certain areas. And I know that you have taken a step to make sure that uh, this company, Adams, which uh, is a company that used to make shoes, is now kind of transitioned so that they are making masks. You're making sure that you donate uh, a huge number of those masks to the New York City Housing Authority. Um, How did you get involved with that? How does that work? One of the joys of doing this job at Initialize is we get to work with founders who can adapt quickly. And although their their sneaker sales were were still doing well, they realized they had an opportunity with their manufacturer in Korea to actually produce special everyday masks for their customers, sold over 50,000 
uh, within the first week. And then we donated one for every one that was sold. Um, and so over 50,000 masks grew into the New York City Housing Authority. Um, to your point, communities of color, um, poor Americans are going to be, those, those two groups are going to be disproportionately affected by this um, just because of, of all the sort of structural problems we have. And so I think at the end of the day, we are all Americans. We are all dealing with this challenge uh, together. Uh, and, and it's just, it's a sad reality that the most vulnerable communities end up taking such a bigger toll. Um, but, uh, but I've been heartened by the fact that nonprofit or that nonprofits as well as for profits like Adams, um, have been actively working to try to serve the communities in which they work. Uh, I think the, the stories that I, I really hope come out of this in the years that we, we look back on this period, um, Will, will I hope be the ones of small businesses and nonprofits and even just individuals looking to help their neighbors at a time where even just the nature of this awful thing makes us want to be skeptical and nervous and fearful of one another. Um, I really hope this can bring out some of the best of us and it will actually have many, many, many more stories of, of, of us just, just being decent to one another. Alexis, um, I've been watching your Twitter feed, too. I saw your picture of your hair the other day. I just want to say, yeah. you go. You're with us with the rest of us getting long and shaggy. <laughs> your things are holding it back right now, but you and no, me I need to, I need to. I need to get the courage to trust my wife to cut it. <laughs> <laughs> I am, yeah, not happening here. My husband's not cutting yeah. it. Alexis, yeah. great to see you. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> oh, us, and we will you. talk to you soon, okay? Thanks, okay. Beck. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.